Well, g'day everyone. Welcome to the Creation Talk podcast. And this time we're going to talk about natural selection and how natural selection is a real phenomenon, but it is not evolution. Now, my name is Dr. Jonathan Safady. I'm a scientist, speaker, and writer with Creation Ministries now in the USA. And with me is... I'm Robert Carter. I am also a PhD in science, and I'm a speaker for Creation Ministries International. In fact, Jonathan and I share an office. Now, natural selection is commonly called survival of the fittest, but this actually misses the point, doesn't it? Yeah, bad term. Total bad term, because you have to define what fittest means, and plus it's not about survival. It's about reproduction. It is. I mean, Dobjansky said the natural selection was, should be defined as differential reproduction. Yeah. Survival of the fittest, natural selection. These are terms that Darwin and his contemporaries wrestled with because it's really hard to come up with a catchphrase that, that succinctly answers what it's all about. And so survival of the fittest came up. And all of Darwin's examples that he uses is about death. It's all about survival. You know, if you have this many offspring, this many die. But has, he's actually flipped the answer over. He flipped the argument over. It's about reproduction. It's he who dies with the most offspring wins. So we could really call it reproduction of the fittest. That would be an accurate term. Yeah, that would be much better, much better. And there's different ways to do it. I mean, oak trees, they might wait 80 years before they start producing acorns. And yet, bacteria reproduce every 20 minutes. So it's a case of how many surviving offspring there are that can actually pass on their genes to the following generation. I mean, humans, we do it pretty slowly, but it seems to be reasonably successful. Rabbits do it really quickly, but a lot of them die. Yeah, a lot of them get eaten very quickly. So there's different strategies that different living things that God created have. Some produce lots of offspring with the ex expectation that not many of them will live, and some produce only a few offspring and protect them very carefully to make sure that they can live. Yeah, so I guess when we understand natural selection as reproduction, that some things will reproduce more than others. I mean, if A is fitter than B, then by definition, A is leaving more surviving offspring than B. This yeah. is a fact. This actually happens. You can't dispute that this is a factual thing. It's a phenomenon that's observable. And over time, if A is producing more than B, there's going to be more genes for A. Yeah. So the population is going to change over time because one type is having more offspring than the other. I mean, this is not anti-Bible. It's not anti-science. It's actually quite common sense. Well, you wrote an article not that long ago about how natural selection would have occurred before the fall even, because yeah. if it is reproduction of the fittest, there'd be a role for natural selection before the fall happens. Yeah, I called it natural selection in paradise. I mean, imagine that you have a bacterium living in soil, and let's say that over time, there are trees that are growing, and the soil turns into a forest. Okay, fine. Well, the bacteria have to change. They're in a totally different environment now. And so, given whatever abilities those bacterium have in the beginning, now the environment changes, some of them are going to reproduce better in the new environment, and the genetics is going to change just because of reproduction. There's no death involved here. There's no struggle. There's no survival. It's, it's just reproduction of really simple things to overcome a new type of environment. Even in paradise before the fall, it doesn't mean that everything is absolutely stagnant. Environments will still change. You're still going to have river deltas growing. You're still going to have marshes filling in over time. So it's not like you can just have a completely static world. It's not the way it would work because physics and reality still apply to the world before the fall. 
and Adam and Eve were meant to work even before the fall. So that would involve uh, changing the environment and some things would be able to do better in that environment than the other. Yeah. And it wouldn't have to involve any death, but I, I guess plant death before the fall isn't, isn't a problem because no. uh, death before the fall refers to the nefesh hayah, which is the vertebrate animals, not the plants or the bacteria. So it wouldn't be a problem necessarily anyway. Yeah. Imagine that Adam and Eve's descendants stumble upon a beautiful valley and they say, hey, we're going to turn this valley into farmland. They're going to absolutely change the environment. They're going to change the species that are living there. They're going to change the, the amount of water that's percolating through the soil. I mean, all these different things will change. They'll change the chemistry of it. And therefore, whatever's living in the soil will change. And differential reproduction, survival of the, the most reproducing Bacteria and, and insects and worms, these things are going to readapt to a new environment. It's kind of easy to comprehend, isn't it? I know. Uh, I mean, I, I could imagine even Adam, when he tends the fruit trees in the garden, might want to breed some trees that he likes better than others. That'd be a perfectly good thing to do. Yeah. And if you start changing the type of tree, you might start changing the type of birds that come in because they like a different type of branching pattern or something like that. You'll change the amount of shade on the ground, which will change the amount of grass and the types of grasses that will grow. This is all part of the natural world. It's part of the God-created world that as things reproduce, they're gonna, you're going to have changes in the genes in those populations. And therefore, you could get new varieties and things from the original created kinds with lots of genetic variation. I could imagine lots of different varieties could be generated before the fall even. Yeah, naturally, without, without human intervention even. Because, I mean, imagine a god front loads some created organism with a lot of genetic diversity. Mm -hmm. And it's all kind of mixed together. But then eventually one organism pops out, has two copies of like a, a gene that gives it white fur. Mm. Well, all of a sudden that animal's like, hey, you know what? I can go live on snow and no one can see me. So you can have different things popping up in a, in a population based on what God originally put into that population. And then if that gives that... That organism advantage maybe can fly higher or maybe can swim faster. Mm. It's funny because what we can do here is we can take Darwin's best argument and steal it for ourselves. Say, thank you, Mr. Darwin. That's ours. Mm -hmm. Go play with something else. You've got nothing to say here. Exactly. I mean, especially uh, when, in fact, creationists understood natural selection to be a real process before Darwin thought of it. Darwin yes. uh, tried to hijack it to be a creative force. But, yes. Um, Creationists understood this before Darwin, and it's really quite strange. We see supposed proofs of evolution, which are really proofs of natural selection, which create inform creationists except anyway. Yeah. And so we don't have to have this knee-jerk response, oh, a natural selection equals evolution, therefore natural selection can't be true. That's not right. You're, you're actually throwing a baby out with the bathwater. You don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You can take the baby up and throw away the dirty bathwater and you have a beautiful baby. Yeah, because Darwin who contaminated the bath first. Yes, he did. The bath uh, filled by creationists. Uh, so why should we throw out something which was a creationist invention anyway? Yeah. And whole idea of change over time. That's not contrary to scripture. The Bible does not say that God created all species as they are today. Aristotle said that. So Darwin was actually arguing against a Greek philosophy, calling it a biblical philosophy. And the Bible doesn't say that at all. In fact, there's a classic example of change over time right there in Genesis when Jacob deliberately breeds sheep and changes the coat color mm. of, of his flocks within just a few generations. Now, of course, there's artificial selection, but artificial selection is often used as a parallel to natural selection. So even in the Bible, we can see the species can 
change based on the original stuff that God gave them mm. and plus maybe some mutations that occur over time. Well, mostly we know that sheep and goats can interbreed, but even yeah. in biblical times, sheep and goats were separate, even though they're the same created kind. So we've got an example in the Bible of fairly rapid variation within the kind. Really interesting article in Journal of Creation. I think it was by Gene Leitner, I think, Okay, about the sheep and the goats. And there's a really cool table in there on sheep and goats and the different species or different subtypes. And mm -hmm. sometimes you can get sheep and goats that can interbreed. Really cool. And then she pointed out in the Bible, there are a word for sheep and there's a word for goat and there's a word for sheep or goat. So at Passover, you could bring a sheep or a goat as your sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Oh, because they understood that there was some like ambiguous dividing line between these two things as if they started off as the same created kind. And then farmers separated them into the sheep-like things and the goat-like things. You can imagine Adam and Eve doing this before the fall. Yeah, I can imagine all sorts of um, farming technologies, the rise of new crops and new animals as farmers select things, because that's what farmers naturally do. Man, that heifer is really big. Let's breed her because we're going to get more big cows, more milk. Even if they weren't eating the, the meat from the cow, they could still have been drinking the milk or using it to plow because a stronger cow, now we can plow more fields with it. Mm. Artificial selection would happen automatically as soon as you add humans to the picture. Yeah, can't escape it. No, we cannot. Like I said, the, the fall has actually spoiled a few things, and now natural selection often is eliminative, yeah. as opposed to, uh, and that's how the unfitter are removed from the genome because they're actually killed. That, that actually happens today. We can't escape that. It is happening. There's this idea in a lot of creationist circles that God pre-programmed life to fill the environments that he created. And that is true. Absolutely true. But once the fall happens, we introduce something that wasn't in the original creation. That is struggle and death. And now we have natural selection being, uh, in a large part anyway, something about life and death, which is what Darwin talked about, but the Bible also talks about it. The natural world today is full of suffering and life and death decisions that organisms have to make constantly. And so it's kind of like this idea of, you know, things might morph slowly before the fall, but it goes in on steroids and goes into hyperdrive after the fall, because now we've got, you know, bunny rabbits having to, to run away from a wolf and a hawk and things like that. Well, so what we're seeing here is natural selection eliminating the unfit, but it doesn't actually create the fit. That's where Darwin goes wrong. He thinks natural selection creates the fit, but all it does is remove what's not fit. One of his big failings, natural selection is a culling process. It takes what is there and it removes things. It never creates anything. Yeah, well, the, the Darwinian process of evolution from goo to you via the zoo requires new genes, uh, new information. But what we're seeing with natural selection is taking out what's already there. But evolutionists, of course, have figured this out. They say, oh, no, no, there's this thing called mutation. So the neo-Darwinian synthesis, about 50 or more years after Darwin, they come together and say, okay, we have selection plus mutation. And the mutation mm -hmm. is the engine of new features. Mm -hmm. But all of that was developed before we even knew what DNA was. All that was developed before we understood how complex life is. Mm. So yeah, you can have a mutation, you can have a new trait appear, but random changes don't lead to things like you know, photosynthesis or vision or complex uh, chemistry in the cell. The micro-machines, yeah. You don't get super complex things from small random changes. 
small random changes be more like rust on a car, not the inventions of a turbocharger or something like that. I mean, yeah. Incremental changes don't produce tremendous new features. And that's what you said. Evolution requires encyclopedias of brand new things to appear. And yet they have no, no means of that. There's no mechanism of that occurring. I mean, it's interesting when you think of people like of the late Christopher, Christopher Hitchens, who was an atheist. Well, he's dead now. He knows there is a God. But he thought, well, blind creatures in caves, well, that disproves the creation model. It proves evolution. And Richard Dawkins endorsed that as a wonderful argument. It's a terrible argument. It's a ridiculous one because you've lost something. Yeah. I mean, we actually agree with both of those in saying that these blind creatures did come from sighted creatures. We agree with that. We have for decades. And they lost the ability to see. Because you don't want eyes in a cave because eyes can get scraped and they get fungal infections, then you die. So, in fact, losing the eye is actually an advantage. In a cave. In a cave. But that does not explain the origin of the eye. In fact, in Darwin's, Darwin's writes, he's trying to explain the origin of the eyeball. And he says, okay, now let's just start with a light-sensitive spot. <laughs> and then he imagines the, the, the light-sensitive spot growing bigger and then forming a cup and then growing a lens. And now you have an eyeball. But what he said was... Let's start with a miracle. Yeah. Because the detection of light by biological molecules is one of the most improbable chemical reactions you can possibly imagine because the light destroys those molecules. And so he starts with this magic thing. Oh, and there's another miracle involved in it, not just the chemistry of it. It's the fact that the light spot is connected to a brain that can interpret what it's seeing. And react to it. And react to it. That is super complicated. The formation of an eyeball after that is actually trivial. Exactly. It does have to go through some stages where as it's bending, it can't make an image. And there's all these problems of these giant leaps of technology that would have to happen. But those are minor compared to the biochemistry of light detection. And so Darwinism is actually couched in ignorance. Well, see, Richard Dawkins had the, the uh, metaphor of climbing mounts improbable yeah. in very small steps. But in fact, Darwin actually started off on an extremely high ledge of <laughs> Mount Improbable and is only climbing up a few, a few, a few uh, uh, feet to the summit. But he actually started off very high up on Mount Improbable, so he's totally got that wrong. But that's because Darwin was more careful than Dawkins. Hmm. Darwin was very conscious of the, the weaknesses of his theory, and he wrote about them, and he knew about them, and he discussed them. And he didn't want to go too far out on a limb. Dawkins, three sheets to the wind. Let's do the whole thing here. From the Big Bang till today, everything is just perfectly naturalistic. And well, it's not really true. Mm. But it's also when you go to these blind cave creatures, there are many ways of losing sight, very few ways of of gaining sight. So it's not really surprising if you haven't got natural selection eliminating defects. Like in in a cave, there's no selection pressure to to maintain sight. So there are a lot of ways eyes can go wrong. Yeah, tons. You can break any number of different genes and lose vision or lose an eyeball. But there's no way to manufacture an eyeball if you don't have one. It's quite interesting that the discoveries of these blind cave fish, sometimes they can actually breed and, f- and bring you sighted cave fish again. Yes. Which means that the mutation must have happened quite recently because yes. otherwise you, you get to the genes themselves going all damaged because there's no selection pressure to maintain a gene for something that isn't working. Yeah, you wouldn't have, if this thing had, you know, lost its eyeballs a million years ago, you wouldn't expect it to be able to breed with a sighted fish and produce sighted fish right away. Because once you lose your eyeballs from one mutation, one gene, all the other things involved with eyeballs are free to mutate. And multiple mutations that appear, not just a single mutation. But there's also some interesting new uh, information about some of these cave fish. It might actually be epigenetic. Mm-hmm. If they go into the cave, 
the babies that are born the next generation won't have eyeballs because there's no epigenetic stimulation of certain genetic pathways that lead to the production of eyeballs. Oh, okay. Weird stuff, man. But again, not not really helping the evolutionary thing. So really, Christopher Hitchens and Dawkins really um, shot themselves in the foot with that. Yeah, they did. So what are some other examples that we hear a lot about? Beetles losing wings. Darwin wrote about this. It was at Madeira Island, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds right. The beetles don't have wings because if they, wing, if they have wings, they fly, wind blows them off the island, and they blow out to sea and die. So a mutation that prevents wingedness in beetles means the beetles stay on the ground and they can live. But that's not an upward progress sort of thing. That's a devolution sort of thing. Same as the, uh, the flightless cormorant on the Galapagos. Mm. These birds have these decrepit wings with, you know, they just, they, they, they look terrible. These wings are, are like mutant little stubby things with a, a couple of stray feathers sticking off. But you don't want to be a, a flighted cormorant because if you leave the Galapagos, you can't make it back to the mainland. Yeah, about f- uh, 600 miles away or something, isn't it? Yeah, it'd be a bit hard to fly. Yeah. And then that might be the only example of a true vestigial organ that we talked about in another episode. That that would be a real vestigial organ, but again, it's going downhill. True. That would be a real vestigial organ. The shriveled up little wings on the beetles and the shriveled up wings on the bird. That's funny. If you're not aware of the vestigial organ argument, go back and look at our other uh, video. I think you'll find that fascinating. So I guess the the main thing left then is is about the phrase natural selection. And there are some who think that personifies nature. It means that nature is actually consciously selecting things. And people think that's, that's not very good. But that is not really a strong argument, is it? No, because... It was never intended that nature is alive, nature has a brain, or nature is picking anything. It's simply the way we say it in English. We don't have a better way to say something that happens all by itself with no help from any outside forces. We call that natural. And sure, it might be hinting at you know, Mother Nature in some ancient Greek or Roman mythology idea, but how else do we say it in English? Yeah, I mean, Darwin you know, and his the co-discoverer Alfred R- Russell Wallace, and then later on Richard Dawkins, they all made it very clear they're not intending it to mean to personify, personify nature. They were rather annoyed at people who misunderstood it that way. But have people misunderstood it that way? Hmm. I mean, interestingly, we might look in vain for someone who's writing about nature being personified with this idea until very recent times. I'm I don't think there's a, a deep history of it. I think what it is is evolutionists saying, oh, you silly creationists, you mistake, mistake this, and they paint a false picture. And some people have probably taken them to heart and actually uh, reacted the wrong way instead of um, saying, well, yeah, we agree with natural selection is real. Yeah, in, in the same way that um, skeptics can claim falsely that the Bible teaches that the earth is flat, and therefore a very small, very tiny minority of Christians was like, well, I believe the Bible, the earth must be flat. No, man, you fell for the trap. Mm. What they told you was not true. And yet, because you're a Christian, you believe the Bible, it must be, you have to follow it. No, don't do that. Same thing here with natural selection. Mm. No one has ever taught that nature is alive until maybe modern times of Gaia theory and, and people like that. But that's, that's new stuff. Oh, goodness. Yeah, the Lovelock thing. And I mean, I know that as a chemist, I talk about chemical affinity, electron affinity. We're not saying that the atom actually is alive and has wonderful feelings towards an electron. Yeah. It's just a term that we use. Yeah, hydrophobic and hydrophilic. Water is not afraid of anything. It doesn't love anything. Yeah, but we use those terms all the time in the English language and international languages also because it just simplifies life. It makes it so easy to talk about something 
inanimate as if it was animate because you don't have to spend paragraphs describing something. You just say it and you're done. It's the way it works, man. This is the way we communicate. And no one ever said nature is alive. Therefore, nature is doing the selecting. Not true. It wasn't true with Darwin and Watts. It wasn't true with Dawkins. It wasn't true with Gould, any of these people. No. Uh, and it's not true when creationists say natural selection either. No. At Creation Ministries International, you and me and, and David Ketchpool has been talking about this for a long time. Don Batten, Gary Bates, you know, all of our scientists, all of our speakers. Carl Wieland. Carl yeah. Wieland. Mm -hmm. We are perfectly comfortable with the idea of natural selection because it's not anti-biblical. Mm -hmm. It's not pagan. It is demonstrable, it's common sense, and it's part of God's created order. It's actually a great argument for creation and a bad argument for evolution. So if you like this sort of content, don't forget to subscribe to our channel. You see the link below, but also do us a great favor and share this with your friends because you can help us get the word out 